This podcast has been brought to you by Wheatberry, the job search site where careers in insurance and financial services begin. Post your job openings for free. Let Wheatberry help you find the talent you need. Wheatberry with an I at Wheatberry.com. Marvin Feldman signed his first New York Life contract in 1966 while he was a senior at Ohio State University and started his career as an agent with New York Life in Columbus, Ohio. Immediately after graduating, he transitioned into New York Life's management program. In 1974, Marv returned to personal production in East Liverpool, Ohio, as a partner of the Feldman Agency and president of Freemar Financial Group. He is currently the president of the Feldman Financial Group in Clearwater, Florida, and president and CEO of the Life Foundation in Washington, D.C., Marv was named to Insurance Newscast list of the 100 most powerful people in the insurance industry in North America, the Life Health Pro list of the 24 most creative people in the insurance industry, and is the recipient of the 2011 John Newton Russell Award, which is the highest honor bestowed on an individual by the insurance industry. He contributes articles to many professional journals and has been featured in both magazines and books. He has also just published his own book, Man on a Mission, How to Succeed, Serve, and Make a Difference in Your Financial Services Career. He is happily married with two children and four grandchildren. Please welcome to our program, Marvin Feldman. Welcome, uh, Marvin uh, Feldman uh, from uh, Clearwater. You're in Clearwater this morning, aren't you? Uh, This morning I'm in Clearwater. I just came in from my office out of Washington, D.C. last night, and I'll be here until... Monday night, and then I'm off again. So you have, uh, it's interesting, you have offices in both Florida and in Washington, D.C. I have my private office in Florida, where I still maintain part of my private practice. But then I also have the Life Happens office in, actually, Roslyn, which is just across the river from D.C. And then I also do that out of my private office in Florida, and Life Happens is a nonprofit consumer education foundation funded by the industry. So it sounds like you're able to uh, rack up the frequent flyer miles uh, pretty uh, pretty well. I have significant frequent flyer miles from any number of airlines, probably far too many. And at some point, hopefully, I'll have a chance to actually use all those miles. <laughs> now you've been uh, you get your start uh, in the insurance business. Uh, back in, uh, if I read right, 1966, uh, what was the market, uh, what was the business like in 1966? Well, you you have to step back for a minute, Dennis, and, and remember that I actually grew up in the business because my father started in the business in 1938. And whenever we sat together as a family, the discussion always somehow or another turned to some form of life insurance or similar related products. So, Even when I graduated from high school and went off to college, I thought I would be coming into the business, which is exactly what happened. My 1966 license was a license with New York Life while I was still a senior in college. And then when I finished and graduated in March of 67, I actually signed a full-time career contract with New York Life. And this year, I just celebrated my 50th anniversary with New York Life. So that's a long time to be with one company. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Did you, uh, were you the lone son who got in the business, or did you have other siblings that get into the business, or or did they go to different directions? I had an, uh, an older brother who passed away last year. 
who also was in the business, he started with my father as soon as he received his master's degree in banking and finance. And I started in an office that was about 200 miles away from my father, Columbus, Ohio, because my then-to-be wife was still in school in the College of Pharmacy. She had another year to go. So I said, I'm not going back to East Liverpool. I'm going to start here. And I actually spent the first seven years or so of my career in Columbus, Ohio. And that was that was good training for me to be away from my father before I came back into his business. That would be. That would be. Now, you graduated from... Ohio State? I graduated from Ohio State, uh, as my wife did. We are both Buckeyes and avid supporters of the sports teams. Yes, yes. Do you have season tickets to their uh, football, or do you watch it on TV? <laughs> no, no. They're, they're a little too far away to run back and forth from Florida to, to Ohio to go to games, so I'll watch them on TV. Yeah. Well, when you first get into the business uh, in 66 and, and then, uh, what were some of the challenges that, that you – uh, felt some personal challenges that maybe you felt or struggled with in getting your start? My struggles were no different than anybody else just coming into the business. And that is, who do you call on? Where is your market? Because I had no natural market when I started. How do you reach those people? How do you convince them that you are the right person to sit down and help them work through uh, their financial and or risk problems to resolve the issues. So it was no different than anybody else getting out there, making the calls, making the appointments, uh, going out to see the people, uh, writing the business, <laughs> fighting with the underwriters to get cases issued. It wasn't any different then than it was now, except it was much easier to reach people back then because you did not have the Internet, you did not have voicemail, you didn't have uh, do-not-call lists. So today it's a little more difficult to actually reach the right people because we've got so many layers of, of insulation to protect them from somebody reaching them. Now, with your dad uh, in the business, and I know he uh, had a wonderful reputation, did you find yourself uh, pretty much following his advice and guidance, or did you have a little bit of rebelliousness in the beginning? Well, Dennis, it, it is interesting. Uh, I had a sign in my bedroom when I grew up that my mother put in there that said, please, I'd rather make my own mistakes. So when I started in the business, you know, when you grow up with somebody, you pick up some of those habits and traits. But when I started in the business, I made the decision that I was going to do things my own way, and I wasn't going to say what my dad said. I wasn't going to do what my dad did. I can remember going into my very first appointment, having that meeting, walking out, and said, oh, man, I just sounded, I sounded just like my dad. <laughs> so it, it just became part of me because the things that he did and the way he said things were so fluid and so appropriate that it, it, it was easier to do it than it was to fight it. So over the years, I've incorporated many of the methods that he was using, many of the uh, phrases and, and words. He was a great wordsmith. Uh, so those have all become part of my lexicon, and I've been doing that now for 50 years. So as your career progressed, what was maybe the one thing that you found that you had to really pay attention to day after day, week after week, in order to move your career forward uh, to be as successful as it has been? Well, in the early years, Dennis, it was really making the calls, getting out to see the people. 
I'm no different than anybody else. I don't particularly enjoy using the telephone. I don't particularly enjoy prospecting. And that's where most agents and advisors fail because they really don't enjoy it. So they don't do it unless they're forced to do it. And after a while, they find themselves on the outside looking in. I was smart enough to know that I had to do these things. I had to force myself to do it. I had to develop systems that worked for me while I was off doing other things. So I became successful and very skilled at doing the things that most people don't enjoy doing. That doesn't mean I enjoy doing it, but I just became successful in, in forcing myself to do it. So you developed your business over the years. Uh, back in 74, you moved back to East Liverpool and developed your business there. Uh, were you, throughout your career, always in personal production then, or did you find yourself uh, more involved in management? No, the, the first several years were personal production because you have to learn what what's right, what's wrong. You have to make your, your mistakes. And, and it's more important to learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself. So after about two, two and a half years, I looked at New York life and I said, I'd really like to try the management route because I love to train and motivate people. I want to help them get to that next level of success. I then spent five years in the New York life management program and was just ready to go into New York City to, to finish up my management training and then have an office uh, someplace else in the country. And at that point, my mother came down with terminal cancer. And when it looked like she was uh, not long for uh, this world, my dad called and said, I really need you to take a leave of absence, come back and help me. And I did that. And she she passed away a few months after that. And then he said, I need you to stay here with me as opposed to finishing up with your New York Life Management career. So I took, uh, I left management with New York Life at that point. Uh, we just had two young children that were born in Columbus, Ohio. We moved them back to East Liverpool. So we went from a community of a million people back to a community of about 25,000. And of course, you know, when you do that, that's somewhat of a cultural shock because none of the amenities you're accustomed to are there. But East Liverpool was a fantastic place to raise small children. It was a, a small, friendly community. And that worked very well. And most of my clients were 50 or 100 miles away in Youngstown, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Akron. Mm -hmm. So I spent most of the days on the road driving to to and from different appointments, uh, different places. But mm. you know, starting in 1974, my focus uh, really went to personal production, and that's where it stayed. Yeah. Well, it's uh, with your dad. Were you able to work with him? Did he? Did he ever retire or did he continue moving forward to his last days? I worked closely with my father for many, many years, and it was nice to know that that I had his trust and confidence enough for him to hand me a file and say, here's the background in this person, uh, please go take care of it, and, and then I could do that. But I was also smart enough, uh, Dennis, to know that I had to develop my own client base because my father's clients were approximately his age. And I knew at some point those clients would become uninsurable or would pass away and there would be no clients to work with. So I worked very diligently to build my own client base and my own practice in addition to what I was doing with my father. 
And my father was active up until the time that his health failed, and he passed away when he was 82. In the last couple of years, uh, he was he tried to be active, but his health just didn't permit it. Right. But his mind was still there, so that was good. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Life Foundation. Uh, now, that's the organization that you are the president and CEO of now, which is based in Washington, D.C. How did that come about? We originally started in 1994. It was a life and health insurance foundation for education, LIFE, L-I-F-E. And we changed our name a few years ago to Life Happens because that's how we were being referred to by most of the industry and most of the press. And that was actually our our, uh, our email was, is, is lifehappens.com. The organization was started, and if you remember back to the industry at that point, there was a lot of turmoil and uh, basically a crisis in the industry as a result of the vanishing premium, which turned into vanishing policies, and some companies that were training agents to sell private pensions and and a bunch of other things that were happening that provided a lot of very negative press in the industry. The companies were concerned about taking an aggressive stance and fighting back against the media because the media was so vocal in their dislike of what was happening. They were basically throwing the agents under the bus. The agents got together, the producing agents got together from all the various associations and said, we need to do something to fight this negativity that's out there and rebuild the trust and confidence of the consumer to the agents, advisors, and the industry. And that was the genesis of the Life Foundation. This group of leaders went around to the various companies and said, here's what we need to do, and here's how we need to do it. And, of course, they, they went out and, and, and retained some very strong outside resources outside the industry to do the PR and the advertising went to the companies and started off with, I believe, around 55 companies that funded the organization to start the program. I think many people felt, Dennis, that after three or four years when the crisis abated, the organization would probably disappear, but it developed a life of its own. And so here we are in 2017, started in 1994, and we're going just as strong as ever, and actually our reach with the consumers and the industry is far greater today than it was 20-some years ago. Interesting. Interesting. Now, it looks like the uh, foundation of your program and communication is video-based. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, were you sitting around the room with a, a group of really smart people, and they said somebody said, hey, let's, let's create videos to tell the people stories? No, we actually started with, with videos from day one. But they, they were basically motivational uh, stories uh, t- talking about the fact that, that life insurance isn't for uh, the people who die, it's for the people who live. And we were trying to educate consumers and build confidence. And we did that for a number of years with heavy print materials, so a lot of brochures, a lot of things that were done in magazines. And we kept looking, as I was on the board, uh, back, I came in in the mid-2000s, and we started looking at the changes that were taking place as far as the Internet and digital resources. 
and we realize that if we really truly want to be effective and get maximum outreach into the consumers for the industry, that we needed to become a digital platform. So a few years ago, we started switching. This is probably 2012 or thereabouts. We started switching all of our resources that were in print to digital only. We no longer have any print resources. We have the ability for somebody to take a PDF and print it on their own if they would like to do that. Mm-hmm. But we became a 100% digital platform. Now, you're right. We do have videos. We have hundreds of videos that are real-life stories about insurance in action, that are insurance 101 educational videos, that are, that are what we call our life lessons videos, which are stories of young people who lost a parent or guardian and were severely impacted in their financial ability to continue their education. So we have a major scholarship program that we fund through our organization. We have many, many different resources for the purpose of educating the consumer about the importance of using life insurance and all the related risk-based products in their overall financial planning because financial fitness is really the key. And when we reach out to the industry, we're not trying to help a specific brand. We can't control branding of a company. But all of our resources are designed to allow the companies to leverage our materials to enhance their brand messaging and to help them achieve their sales and marketing goals. So we really have two things we're looking at. One is reaching out to consumers to educate and motivate them to make the appropriate decisions. And the other is to provide the resources to the industry to make that happen. So the the videos and, and content that you produce is really accessible to anybody who is out there in the life insurance business and wants to uh, help their educate their potential customer to better understand uh, the importance that life insurance plays. We have a consumer website, uh, which is lifehappens.org, O-R-G, and that's available to anybody, and it's primarily designed for the consumer to educate the consumer. And about 20% of our industry resources can be accessed through that without any fees. But to get access to the full suite of materials that we provide to the industry, of course, we're a nonprofit, but everything takes funds in order to do what you do. Right. We have another platform. It's called Life Happens Pro. And that platform is the one that's available for the companies and the agents and advisors on a fee basis to access all the hundreds of videos and all the thousands of flyers and brochures and social media posts and all the other things that we do. So from a marketing standpoint, we provide a full suite of resources through the pro platform. And that's not one that consumers can access. That's just for the industry to help them meet their goals, to help us meet our goals of further educating the consumer. Mm -hmm. So when, uh, say, a guest or a a guest of your program, one who, say, the individual or the family who is going to participate in this video program, how does that start? Uh, I presume that uh, someone with a carrier identifies an individual uh, do you actually go out and produce the video on their site, or do you bring them in? 
How does the, the mechanics of that, putting that video together to tell that family story work? Well, that, the genesis of that was uh, somebody who suggested to us at one of our company meetings that we do something to create perhaps a life insurance awareness month, Liam. And we took that idea and we ran with it. We've now been doing that 16, 17 years. And part of that is what we call the real-life stories, and those are the insurance in-action stories. What we do is we put out a call to the industry, which, which is all the agents, all the advisors, all the companies, tell them, telling them that we are looking for the real-life stories, the insurance in-action, whether it's life insurance, whether it's long-term care, disability insurance, perhaps it's living benefits, on a policy where somebody accessed the, the values of the policy before a terminal illness prior to death, any of those types of stories. We then have those submitted to us, and we have uh, people that review those submissions to determine which ones are the most appropriate for what we want to accomplish. That then, once that decision is made, we go back to those people and let them know what we want to do. And, of course, the agents have to get uh, permission from the insurers to talk about and, and present that story. We then go back to the companies to work with the compliance officers and do the background checks to make sure there's nothing there that would be of concern to the company because we can't do it unless the company also approves it. So then we create two versions of that story. One is the story that uses the company name, and that's used within the industry for promotion of the people who have been recognized for doing outstanding service for their clients. And then we have one that's generic where there's no company representation at all, which allows all the other agents and all the other companies to use it generically to talk about how our products work. And what we really want to do is to make sure that consumers understand what our products do, not what they are, because everybody knows what insurance is. They don't necessarily know how it works. It's uh, if you had a. Do you have all the resources that you need to from your supporters to to accomplish the the mission that you're you're set about to uh, to work on accomplishing? Well, when you say that we have all the resources, uh, we have all the resources that can always use additional funding to do more resources. Yeah. So funding is always an issue with any nonprofit, especially over the last 10 years as we've had a, a, a longer than expected period of very low interest rates. And that's impacted the company's willingness in, uh, to, to fund some of the things that are out there uh, but that's that's not just us. That's across the industry as a whole. The companies are now looking at, at everybody and everything, and they're saying, yes, we have sufficient funding to fund everything out there, but we don't want to do that anymore. What is so they the, are becoming more selective in where the, they're spending their money. Right. What is uh, one of the things that uh, the life insurance industry really needs to pay attention to in the next few years in order to move it in itself in the right direction? Well, you know, we're, we've been on a downward trend for 50 years in the number of policies that are being sold. So I, 
we've gone from, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's like 16 million policies a year down to something around 9 million policies a year. So the trend continues to go down. So the policies are getting a little bit bigger, but the trend of the number of policies continues to go down. Of those people that actually own life insurance, whether it's group or permanent, only four out of ten people actually own individual policies. So the ownership of life insurance has continued to trend down. And what we're seeing in our research and what Limmer shows in their research is that millennials are not big buyers of life insurance and related products in today's market. And part of that, Dennis, is because everything they're doing that's a life-changing event is five, six, eight, ten years further down the road. So they don't get married at 21. They get married at 31. So they don't have children at 22, 23, 25. They're having their children at 35, 40, 45. They don't buy a home at 23, 24, 25. They're buying homes when they're in their 30s or their 40s. So everything is delayed, and their need, as they perceive it, is not there until some of those events occur. So that will happen, but it's just taking longer than what the industry would like. In the meantime... The industry truly needs to simplify how people buy their insurance and related products because it's very uh, invasive for a typical life insurance policy where they've got to go for a medical or somebody comes to the house for a medical exam and then all the underwriting takes place and all the paperwork has to be completed and then you've got to go back two or three or four times and you've got the inspections that take place. And it's difficult and time-consuming to get it done. What companies are doing now is they're coming up with different types of online electronic underwriting and simplified underwriting to minimize those types of situations where somebody might be able to fill out the forms online and based on the information provided to the company, they might be able to make a decision within a few days instead of a few weeks or a few months. That's what needs to be done on a more consistent basis across the board because the invasiveness as it's perceived by most people is not something they enjoy. So we have to make it easier to understand. We have to make it easier to purchase. What do you see? uh, What's the major initiatives and the direction or objectives that you have with Life Happens in the next uh, two to three years? This year, we're concentrating on the theme of financial fitness. Our spokesperson is Danica Patrick, the race car driver. Uh, Her career involves a tremendous amount of physical fitness in order to be very successful. And she's developing an outside business interest outside of her racing because she knows racing is a finite type situation. And when she's done racing in the next few years, she hopes to transition into uh, an industry and a company that deals in the physical fitness area and, and health and well-being. Well, that all ties in very well for what we need to do for our clients and our industry, and that's financial fitness. So the messaging that we're developing with Danica this year is all about financial fitness, and we just finished doing all the video filming uh, with Danica to to put all those messages together. 
That will start coming out to the industry in the next few weeks and will be available through the end of this year. She continues to be our spokesperson. What we would hope is that that theme of financial fitness really resonates, and that's what we're seeing and hearing from all the various companies that we're talking to now, that that really ties in with what they want to do because they're they're dealing with longevity risks, which is financial fitness. They're dealing with retirement programs. They're dealing with life insurance issues. Everything is about financial fitness. As it resonates with the companies and resonates with the consumers, we would then hope that we can build on this in the next few years and make this a larger and larger platform and get more and more financial support from the industry to allow us to expand our outreach to to different consumer entities. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I have to admit that I am a NASCAR fan, so I was just wondering, uh, with your association with Danica, does that mean that will she take you for a ride around the track, uh, like five (laughs) or ten laps? Is that something you would do? I did not. I was just with her this week. I did not ask her because I wasn't forward enough to say, is there any way I could get together with you and go for a ride? I didn't do that. That's not, doesn't mean I didn't think about it, but I will tell you if the opportunity arises, I would certainly say yes. <laughs> uh, I think that's a wise decision because I think every guy wants to ride around the track, you know, maybe 10, 20 laps. That yeah, could be. I, I, do you know what the definition of a gearhead is? Or do you know what a gearhead is? Uh, I've heard several versions. <laughs> uh, well, a, a gearhead is somebody who loves anything automotive, loves speed, loves anything about it. That's me. <laughs> I, I, I am a gearhead. I've always liked fast cars. When I was younger, I used to race a Corvette in road racing. My brother was a drag racer up until the time that he passed away last year. So cars and and anything related to cars have been in my blood for years and years and years. So I watch the IndyCar racing. I watch the NASCAR racing. I watch the, the Formula One racing. Anything to do with, with cars and racing I love. A lot of times in my office in the background, if I don't have on one of the business channels or, or one of the news channels, I'll have the Velocity channel on, which is only about cars. That's neat. That's neat. Well, you know what to ask her next time you're together then. Uh, say I noticed that you had, uh, you've also written a book, uh, called entitled Man on a Mission, How to Succeed, Serve, and Make a Difference in Your Financial Services Career. Uh, what's that about? A number of years ago, uh, the people at MDRT, Millie Miller Roundtable, came to me and said, you really should write a book. Uh, as you know, I was the president of MDRT for a number of years. I've been the chairman of the top of the table. So I've been fairly successful in the industry, and they said, you should share uh, your methods of operating and what you've done and how you've done it. And I said, "Ah, nobody wants to listen to that. Finally, my wife said, you know, this is your legacy. You need to write this book, even if you only leave it for your children, so they know about you and your grandchildren know about you at some point down the road. I finally agreed, wrote the book and tried to take the things that I've done for the last 50 years and put them down on paper in a format that somebody could read it, and it doesn't matter whether they're in our industry or somebody else's, but they would be able to read it, look at it, understand it, and say, I can do that. I can say that. I should develop this system. It's all down in the book. It's there for them to use. One of the problems we have 
is making sure that our clients and our prospects understand that there are issues and problems that need to be addressed. And many times, they're not even aware that they have a problem. My mission, which is why it's called Man on a Mission, my mission has been to make sure these people understand that there is a problem, and that problem can be resolved through planning that I can provide to them, and where appropriate products that fit their needs that will provide the liquidity to solve that issue. That's what the book deals with. It's all about taking those steps and asking those questions. There's a list of 100 questions developed and put into that book. So somebody doesn't have to sit there and think, what am I going to ask this person? All they have to do is read these questions before they go into a meeting. And it will give them a guideline of everything they need to ask in order to make that person understand there is an issue that needs to be resolved. People buy based on emotions. They don't buy it on numbers and statistics. So until they make that emotional decision to purchase, nothing's going to happen. My questions are designed to provide those emotional decisions. Then you can sit down with numbers and statistics and show them how the problem is the problem, the premium is not the problem, the premium is the solution or the planning is the solution, or the legal documents are the solution. Because, I, you know, I charge fees in addition to charging commissions, so I do both. It, it's it's laid out in the book. It's very simple. It's Man on a Mission. It's available at Amazon.com. It's had great reviews, and the people that are using it, I've gotten uh, lots of notes back from them saying, you've reminded me about why I started in this business and what I'm doing, and what I got away from, and it's really helped me go out and, and initiate some cases with some people that have just been stagnant. So it's, it's doing exactly what I wanted to do, and that's to get people to reach that next, next level of professionalism, of productivity, while maintaining appropriate family values, because I'm all about family first. Nice, nice. See, earlier in our conversation, we talked a bit about your dad, uh, uh, but I'd like to turn maybe my final question to uh, about your mom. Uh, what was some advice that uh, your mother uh, gave to you or example that she set for you uh, that's been important to you in your life? Well, my mom died back in 1974, as I mentioned, from uh, cancer. So it was, she wasn't there for the bulk of uh, my career, but when I was growing up, there were things that, that she told me, and that was, you know, don't try to do it yourself. Learn from others. Learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, always maintain humility. Always maintain a very strong work ethic. Maintain a very strong family ethic. Uh, you know, your family comes first. Everything else can work around that. And and that's what I learned from my mother, because my mother was the one that forced my father to take time off and go on family vacations. Otherwise, he would have worked 24-7, seven days a week. <laughs> and she was the one that maintained the family values, and that was passed on to myself. Just to remind our, our listeners, uh, our guest today is Marvin Feldman, who is the president and CEO of the Life Foundation headquartered in Washington, D.C., and also, of course, uh, has uh, uh, his uh, Feldman Financial Group in Clearwater, Florida. 
Uh, Marv, it's been wonderful to visit with you and hear your story today. Thank you for joining us. Dennis, you're most welcome. Oh, hi. You're still here. Say, if you are interested in reaching thousands of licensed insurance producers across the country, why not consider sponsoring a guest podcast? If you had sponsored this episode, we would be telling thousands of listeners daily about you and your company. Find our contact information to request prices and availability at insuranceradio.com.